Devotion to the Word of God is paramount for every Christian. But how does one rightly interpret Scripture? This holy book is sacred. This holy book must be read and understood correctly. You're listening to the Book of Jude. Welcome everybody to the Book of Jude. So glad you take the time out to listen to me. So I told you in the last episode that we were traveling. We went to Ohio. It's a 15-hour drive from Texas to Ohio, but we had a blast. I officiated my mother-in-law's wedding, and uh, I I started telling people I'm marrying my mother-in-law. That didn't go over well, so I started saying I'm officiating my mother-in-law's wedding. Uh, It was a beautiful wedding. We had lots of fun, great food. Uh, there was some dancing, not by me, um, but it was good. We seen a lot of family. We went, we did some four wheeling. We did some skeet shooting and, uh, my older son just was perfect at it. I don't know how he's never, the only thing he's ever shot was a 22 pistol. We're not a big, um, firearm family. <laughs> I don't, we don't own firearms. A lot of people are surprised about that because I was in the army and, you know, we're in Texas, but, uh, no, we're, we're not about that. But, um, you know, the good thing about living in Texas is any, any thief is going to assume you do have a firearm. So anyway, uh, little, little deterrent, but I'm okay with my security system and, you know, whatever, whatever happens, happens anyway. Uh, but he did some skeet shooting and he was really good at it. Really good at it. Very good instincts on this guy. So went out four wheeling over some acres, uh, seen lots of deer, lots and lots of deer. It's beautiful to see these, these creatures, uh, just, what do they do? Prance or, or gallop? I don't know. They were, they were doing that prancing thing. What else? Yeah. Just hung out with family, drove back, got back to work. And uh, here we go. I couldn't wait to to get back into this. I'm so excited. I think, you know, I, I'm still coughing a little bit, but I can say a lot more words between coughs. So that's why I'm excited to get back into this. Because man, for me, it's just felt felt like so long to be to be uh, off of this. So uh, here we go. We are in. Uh, actually, we're wrapping up Revelation three, chapter three. We're wrapping that up today. And uh, we're going to start, I want to start by tying up some loose ends though. So the last episode, I left you a little bit hungry for what I was talking about when Jesus died and where he went. When we spoke, when I talked briefly about Jesus going into the underworld, uh, people say hell or Hades. And I could do a whole episode, like I said, on this. I don't have time, but I do want to reference a little bit more to what I'm saying in the apostles creed, it says that he was, Jesus was crucified. He died. He was buried and he descended into hell. Now the word hell, if you're like me, I'm thinking of the fire, the lake of fire. And that's really not the case. That's kind of a poor, uh, word to use. And, and let me explain what we're really talking about is Jesus died and he went where dead people go. In the Old Testament, it's Sheol. In the New Testament, or I guess in the Greek, it's Hades. 
when you die, you go into the ground, you go into a tomb, your soul goes to the underworld. That's where you go. Now, we talked about this last time. Who controls the underworld? All these things. Jesus says he has the keys now. So, the Apostles' Creed, they that's what they meant. He was, he was crucified, he died, he was buried. He goes to the underworld. Underworld, that's... That's a better word to use, especially for us, because we don't, when we hear hell, we're thinking the devil and the fire and, you know, all that stuff. That's, he didn't go to hell. He didn't go to hell to be punished. Okay. Um, let me talk about a few verses here. Paul in Ephesians 4, 7 and 9, it says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and women. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. When Paul says, therefore it says, he is quoting Psalm 68, 18. Psalm 68, 18 says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Now I want you to read the whole chapter of Psalm 68, but that's where Paul is taking us in his use of the Old Testament. And he also says that the lower regions, comma, the earth. Now, I don't know what Bible you have, but this is a particular uh, Bible translation, and it's the correct one. Lower regions, comma, the earth. Because it's just proving a point that he's he was buried in his you know, he's, he's under the earth. He's, he's in the underworld. So a couple of things though, host of captives. A lot of people think that Christ went down and led a bunch of saints up and they, and they use another verse from, I think Matthew that says, you know, dead people were walking around and everything, but, but let's break this down though. A host of captives, this is a defensive term. So he didn't lead people out of the underworld. He didn't lead saints out. This is defense. He led a host of captives. So just just think of a king and his army, and they got uh, prisoners of war. He's leading them, right? And they're not going anywhere. But he's. This is what this is what I'm trying to get in your head. The offensive phrase is he gave gifts to men and women. When the army back then, they went out, they conquered, they would have um, the spoils of war. They'd have prisoners of war. They would have the spoils of war. And what happened was not only did they lead out their uh, prisoners of war, they took the gifts, the spoils, but they also handed them out. So you can see... Uh, in Psalm 68, it says receiving gifts among men, but Paul changes it to he gave gifts. But you see, Paul is, think about the timeline. Paul is saying 
He's referring to Christ, so he changes it. Number one, are you okay with him changing it? <laughs> uh, you should be. He's a he's an inspired apostle, but uh, he is changing it to um, just like John does, as we see. He's 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 repurposing it. Jesus, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, because he has the keys to death and Hades, he is giving us men and women the gifts of what he just went. He he ascended, he descended, he's using Psalm 68. And so both of these things are true, of course. They they receive the spoils of war and but and and they will give they would get he would uh, the king would give them to the people, right? So the the gift is our you know, his grace, our forgiveness, our salvation. Um, but what was he doing? So Second Peter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what it's supposed to say. Paul wrote Tartarus, Tartarus. And see, again, hell is misleading uh, to us. And so he cast them into Tartarus and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to, to be kept until the judgment. But wait, what's Tartarus? Tartarus, see, you got to know more than the Bible in this scenario. This is the inferno regions of the ancient Greek mythology. The name was originally used for the deepest region of the world, the lower of the two parts of the underworld, where the gods locked up their enemies. Originally, Tartarus was used only to confine dangers to the gods of Olympus, Greek mythology. In later mythologies, Tartarus became a space dedicated to the imprisonment and torment of mortals who had sinned against the gods and each punishment was unique to the condemned. Do you see how that gets messy and it goes kind of overlaps each other? So so yeah, we can call it hell uh, because, you know, it's a place of torment. Well, but listen, see, the Greeks had their own story about how they put some gods in, in prison. And this is exactly the context. We're talking about um, Jesus leading captives. We're talking about the prison, gloomy darkness, the abyss, Jesus was proclaiming to spirits, where? In prison. So a Greek would say Hades, but where? what about Tartarus? Where's Tartarus? What's the deepest part? It's the deepest abyss of Hades. And Jude 1, 6 says the same thing. They, the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling, and he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And we'll see later in Revelation uh, chapter 9, the word abyss being used as the bottomless pit. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteousness, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah and his family, were brought safely through the water. Hmm. Again, people will say, 
yeah, he was he's preaching to the the saints in the underworld. But no, 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 no. The spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So now we're going back to the flood. So now I'm not thinking we're talking about just holy ones that have died, righteous that have died, and he's preaching. to. They're in prison. What happened in Genesis 6? At the beginning of chapter 6 in Genesis, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, verse 4, and also when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, they these were the mighty men who of old, uh, the men of renown. So, again, I could spend probably multiple episodes on this. I just wanted to tie up loose ends. This is what is happening. Jesus dies. He goes where dead people go. He's he's buried. His soul goes to the underworld, and he goes and proclaims to these spirits that are uh, th- those those sons of God, spirit beings, those sons of God who took wives from the daughters of man. So they took they they procreated with human uh women by the way if you if you notice uh first peter three it starts off with husbands and wives so just putting that out there um so the the sons of god procreate with human women and i know there's other people out there don't want to believe this i have studied this over and over and over no i don't want you to take my just just hear it from my opinion or whatever but i also know the uh counter arguments against these other theories no there it's we're talking about these human beings the righteous ones and the unrighteous and listen i know all that i don't have time to do that again i'll be happy to do it in the future but i got to stay on track here's what we're saying i just didn't want to leave you with you know just wondering jesus went down, proclaimed to these spirits that you're not going anywhere. You're, you're going to stay in prison. You're going to be punished. Your day's coming. That's the end of you. I died, and now I'm, I'm, now I'm going to resurrect. Sometimes it's hard for us to grasp this, but if you believe in a God that created the heavens and the earth, if you believe that God created human beings. If you believe that God impregnated a human woman named Mary, uh uh-oh, this sounds familiar. Yeah, you do believe that, don't you? Isn't that crazy? So why is Genesis 6 hard to believe? And then that baby that was born from God and a human woman grows up and he says he is God manifested in the flesh 
flesh and bones. He dies. He's buried. And we also believe that he is resurrected. So don't tell me Genesis 6, the sons of God are not celestial beings. They have to be. <laughs> it, it makes perfect sense. And oh, by the way, Jude references this same thing. Tell me where Peter and Jude are getting this story. How do they know spirits are in prison? I'll tell you from the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch tells us the story. He calls them the watchers. Rebelled. They formally disobeyed. They didn't stay in their lane. Bad things happen. They produce these giants in which the flood came. God started over with Noah and his family. And let me just in and let me just end this portion by this. Christus Victor. This is the element of the atoning work of Christ that emphasizes the triumph of Christ over the evil powers of the world. See, that's the other thing. You believe in God, you believe in the devil, and you believe in demons and angels. And Why is it so hard to believe about uh, Genesis 6? Why is it so hard to believe? You believe in a talking donkey. <laughs> Some of you believe in a talking snake. So this shouldn't be hard. And it you have to wrap your mind around God or, or G, you know, uh, the Son of God, Jesus, coming down and declaring war on the spirit world. Now, I'm not charismatic. I'm not talking where me and you aren't dealing with this. I'm saying I'm saying this is one of his things. So back to uh, Christus Victor. The evil powers of the world through he rescues his people and establishes a new relationship between God and the world. Christ the victor themes, the themes of, of the victory of God in Christ over the evil powers of the world by defeating the evil powers that oppose God. Jesus Christ rescued his people from death and established himself as the rightful king of the cosmos of the cosmos. So everything we're learning in Revelation, I have the keys of death and Hades. I'm over the world. I'm over the universe. I'm the king of all kings, Lord of all lords. I have power and dominion over everything. And I, I'm giving, I have, uh, I am victorious through death and resurrection. And I have a gift to give to men and women. That is our salvation. It all makes sense and it all comes together if you just take your time and truly think about it. Okay? So I just thank you for allowing me the time to tie up loose ends. And after the break, we're going to get into more of the Old Testament and Revelation. 
listening to the Book of Jude. Connect with us on social media. Search at Book of Tim Jude on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Chaplain Jude posts frequently with additional resources for you to further your study of God and His Word. Feel free to ask questions or leave comments. Remember, prayer requests are always welcome. Search Book of Tim Jude, B-O-O-K-O-F-T-I-M-J-U-D-E. Now, back to the show. All you need to search is that book of Jude. You don't need the Tim. I talked to my guy. We're going to get a new thing recorded. Sorry for the confusion at book of Jude. All right. John uses, alludes to Old Testament verses, passages, ideas, and he just puts them all in a blender and vomits it out, and that's how we get the book of Revelation. And everybody goes crazy, and everybody tries to interpret these things and figure it out, and there's so many different interpretations on this book. However, we are focusing on the Old Testament. Every time John uses an Old Testament reference, we're going to go there and try to figure out what he is talking about. Last time, we spoke about the keys of death and Hades. We talked about the keys of David. And so we're now to Revelation 3, 9. And this is the letter to the church of Philadelphia. But verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, let me remind you, if you haven't listened to this series from the beginning, stop right now and go listen to the first episode of season three. This is when we start uh, because of things like this. What's the synagogue of Satan? Well, not a whole lot to work on, but we did already address this in an earlier episode because we find this same um, terminology, the same reference, I guess, in Revelation 2, 8 to 11. So we, we already addressed that. So now we're going to be focusing on, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And Beale and McDonald, uh, the two theologians that we use a lot, they in their book, they say... Um, uh, this clause, I will make them uh, in order that they, uh, so that they will bow down, come bow down for your feet. It's a collective illusion. Remember, John just pulls whatever he wants from his Hebrew Bible. It's a collective illusion to Isaiah, a lot in Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 14, 49, 23, and Isaiah 60, 14. And also, we're going to look at Psalm 86, 9. So let's go there now. Uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 45. In verse 14, you can uh, read it for yourself, but it points out, you know, Yahweh is saying that the the wealth of Egypt, uh, all these nations, they're going to come over to you and be yours. They're going to follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. 
truly. Verse 15, you are God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And if you read the whole chapter, he's talk, he's speaking to uh, Cyrus, and God is using him as an instrument, and this is what he has, this is what he's saying. So now let's flip over to chapter 49 of Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 23, kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust off of your feet. How do you like that? Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Again, John is taking all of this and using it here uh, for the Church of Philadelphia. Next is Isaiah 60, 60. Chapter 60, verse 14, again, the future of Israel, we're saying, we're, we're talking them up, right? The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. We're building Israel up for the sake of God. Every one of these say, they will know who I am right? They're going to come bow down to you. And so in this letter to the church of Philadelphia, God is saying through, uh, God has shown a vision to John, the apostle, and he is now uh, writing this and he's pulling from the Isaiah scroll, of course. Uh, and, and this is what he's putting out. He's referencing these things. He's saying, hey, your enemies are going to come and bow down to you. And we can even throw Psalm 86, 9 in there. Uh, David is speaking of God, and, and this one's kind of different, but David is speaking of God, and he says in verse 9 of chapter 86, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So that kind of sums up what we're saying. So B.O. McDonald continues, These Old Testament texts predict that the unbelieving Gentiles would come and bow down at Israel's feet and to Israel's God in the last days. This prophecy has been fulfilled in, in, in an apparent ironic fashion in the Gentile church, which has become true Israel by virtue of its faith in Christ. So in the Old Testament, whenever God or someone is speaking of all the nations, those other nations, the enemies, Egypt and, and Babylon and all these other nations that are going to come bow down to you and know who your God is. We should get excited about that. Us, if we're, if you're like me, you're a Gentile, you're not Jewish. God has, has fit the, the nations other than Israel, uh, in his plan to come and bow down to him. And so, uh, we obviously see, uh, even in the time after Jesus, uh, not even, long after so we're in the book of acts and we're seeing gentiles being saved and so it's 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 a great thing it's a powerful that's a whole nother i mean that's a whole nother sermon that'll preach right all right let's move on to revelation 3 verse 12 we're still in the church of philadelphia the one who conquers i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god never shall he go out of it and i will write on him the name of my god the name of the city of my god the new jerusalem which comes down from my god out of heaven and my new own name sorry and my own new name 
All right. There's a lot to unpack there. So I will write on him the name of God, the new name. And if you've been following, you know that the language used here is from Revelation 2.17, the hidden manna, the white stone, the, the new name on the stone. Uh, those images of God and his ownership of the believer. Old Testament name theology applied to the believer. So the name theology from the Old Testament, I hope you remember, uh, is being applied also to the new believer, the Gentiles, the you know, whoever, it doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, whoever is found in Christ. And if you allow me, I'd like to jump ahead a little bit. Revelation 22, where John in verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Verse 4, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The name theology John is using, but his name shall be on our foreheads. See, this this name theology, this new name is a mark of genuine membership in the community of the redeemed without which without which entry into the eternal city of God is not possible you have to have you have to be marked with his name dr heiser states and and he says um it stands in contrast to the satanic name which unbelievers receive which identifies them with the character of the devil and with the ungodly city of man. However you want to put that. Yes, I'm talking about this mark of the beast, the 666. I don't believe that people are going to be getting a a tattoo of some type or something like a visible 666 on their foreheads or on their hands. We, we've also found manuscripts when it says 616. So, <laughs> you know, which one's going to be? I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, most people know. Uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, let's not get down this rabbit trail. But my point is this is called name theology. And so whether you, um, whatever side you're on, if you're on, you know, whatever you want to say, the devil side or, or uh, the city of man you know, it's like um, ungodly and godly. So you're either going to have his name on your forehead or you're going to have the uh, ungodly name on your forehead. Again, name theology, symbolic. Um, but we we always I always hear people talk about the mark of the beast, but we have the mark of God. His name shall be on our foreheads. Revelation 22. I mean, it's right there. So. Um, Again, we are, why did I bring this up? Because of the name theology in the Old Testament. This is, this is nothing new. John is not making, John is not uh, bringing up a new idea. John is not um, creating this, basically this thing that we, man, uh, humans, have created uh, this whole theology of you know people walking around with six 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 on the and 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 that's the devil and and you know mark of the beast and all this craziness it's just a lot of symbolic language and to conclude Beale says this conclusion is also pointed to be by 
uh, to by observing that the new name is an allusion to the prophecy of Isaiah 62 and 65 about Israel's new standing in the future. So let's go there. Here we go with more name theology. The, the, again, the scroll of Isaiah. We're using Isaiah a lot. In 60, chapter 62, verse 2, this is about Zion's coming salvation. It says, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. That's very, again, very familiar with what we're already talking about. Here's how this verse ends, verse 2. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And then it actually goes on to talk about you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, royal diadem in the hand of God. I mean, read again, read the whole chapter, but for the sake of time, we're going to jump over to 65, Isaiah 65. Again, with the name theology, 65, 15, and this chapter is about judgment and salvation. 15, you shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name. So this is this chapter is about judgment um, of course, you heard that in the beginning, and then salvation. Uh, so the ungodly, uh, you have your own name, you'll be uh, cursed, you'll be put to death. God, but his servants, so the godly, will be called by another name. He will bless them. So again, I guess my point to drive home here is this: there's nothing new here. There's nothing new. This was I'm reading from Isaiah. John is just repurposing it. And let's continue with Beal. Um, the the saints of Israel are referred to figuratively uh, as Jerusalem, which will be called by my name, uh, by a new name, not not different personal new names. There, there the new name designates the Israel's future kingly status, restoration to Yahweh's covenantal presence. The same significance for name and especially emphasizes its new married relationship with the Lord. All this is, is about Israel's new standing in the future. And this is not replacement theology. This is covenant theology. This is not that saying that the Gentile Christians or whoever, the Jew or, or uh, Gentile, the Christians are replacing Israel. That's not what we're teaching we're teaching covenant. So when I say Christians, when we say saints, the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, whatever, uh, how John is saying it, but back here in the Isaiah scroll, we're talking about uh, Israel's, the new Israel's new standing in the future. The saints of uh, Israel are referred to figuratively. So um, there's a new name it designates like uh, a future kingly status. It's restoration to Yahweh's covenantal presence. Um, it it especially, uh, I didn't even read it, but it's talking about marriage and a, a new relationship with the Lord. That's, that's uh, Isaiah 62. If you keep going down again, please read the entire chapter. It talks about her and being married to uh the Lord. And this is exactly what John will see 
uses later. Nothing new. Don't go to the book of Revelation and think you can figure it out if you don't know the Old Testament. I'm going to hammer that nail until it breaks the entire piece of wood. I promise. Beale says the promised blessings of this prophecy will be fulfilled among those in the church, the latter-day Israel, who do not compromise. Those who don't compromise, those who stick to uh, their allegiance to God, these are the ones we're talking about. So basically, these letters to the churches, he's saying, I have this against you. Don't do this, but do this. If you do this, I'm going to bless you. And just like name theology, this is the blessing and a curse theology from the Old Testament, from the Pentateuch. If, if you do this, you'll be cursed. If you do this, if you follow me, if you obey, you will be blessed. And ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, the next time you hear my voice, we're in Revelation 4. And that will end it for today. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for sticking with me through this very difficult series. I, I'm excited for the future. Revelation 4 is going to be crazy. It's going to be more things you've never heard of. I guarantee it. Until then, go out, make disciples. Thank you.